Good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Right, I guess this is spring break, so one of my friends always used to call it the fellowship of those without lake houses. I suppose spring break is beach houses. That's, or that beach houses, I guess. I don't know. We're, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Tullahoma. We were lucky just to kind of go out in the woods. Uh, but anyway, glad to have you here. We're, do, we're doing a special, special night tonight. We've, we've been going through, as you know, large swaths of history. And so tonight we're going to slow down and, and look at one specific case, right? Look at, look at St. Patrick and Ireland and kind of what, what, how Christianity developed there. And what a unique and beautiful story it is, and and how that how that speaks to us, right? Where we are and what we do, and so I'm I am really excited about tonight's teaching. Um, if you don't get the emails, the barcode bar is up there. Uh, you can scan that. And Jay, he sends out we send out a weekly email with the notes from the previous week, so you'll get the notes, a soft copy of the notes. And then we've got a a uh, Slido and the room number. If you want to go to Slido.com, you can shoot the barcode or go to room number four zero zero seven three seven five, and you can ask questions. And you can also uh, you can also like questions, so they'll come up to the top. And so we'll we will. Uh, We'll see what, what people's interest is. Uh, he, Jay, does have slides tonight. So if you're, you want to get the code, go ahead and get that now because it will, it will go away at, at some point here in the teaching. So, and I think we good. Other than that, we good? All right, fantastic. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Um, thankful for your word. Thankful, thankful for the truth that, that we have in it. Um, thankful, thankful for your history, Father. And th this is our history. And, and, and sometimes we kind of forget that when we look back. And th these are the things that we have done. And, Father, we study this, one, to see your faithfulness and to see your hand, and, two, to learn and understand the ways that you work and the ways that you guide your people, because that's going to be the same ways you guide and lead us today and the same callings. Be with Jay as he teaches, Father, and let us be changed. Let us encounter your truth, and we should never encounter your truth and walk away the same. So, Father, don't have us the same people walking out that walked in. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian, and welcome. I'm glad that you guys are here, uh, and we are in that unique position. We're into that spring break uh, window, as Brian said, where we've got, we straddle two counties, and, uh, but uh, we are glad that you guys are here with us this evening. And uh, we're going to take something that's uh, a little bit d a different approach. Uh, we've been kind of doing these 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 big sections, as Brian was saying. And tonight we're going to we're going to kind of dive into one people group, one character in particular. Uh, I wore my green tonight in honor of uh, St. Patrick, uh, and uh, Brady put up some green lights for us as well. So if your neighbor's not wearing green, reach over and pinch them tonight, right? So uh, and uh, keep them keep them awake is more what you need to do at some point. Uh, as we, we begin to share. So uh, I actually, uh, tonight's a lot of the talk, and I'll show you the book in a moment, um, comes from a book that uh, senior pastor Mike Glenn recommended to me one of my very first years on staff at Brentwood uh, by a historian named Thomas Cahill. And his first in his volume of the Hinges of History series was this book, uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Uh, and so as I got a hold of that book, it reminded me of why I loved history. A lot of history books are dry. <laughs> They're a little dull. You have to find and piece together the stories, but he's a good author. He's not a Christian that I know of, uh, but he is sympathetic to the Christian worldview and the impact that Christianity and followers of Christ have had, uh, and he's just a really good writer. And so, again, not everything he writes in the books, if you go after it, are Christians. He doesn't always use Christianly words, if you know what I mean, uh, so I don't hear it as a blanket endorsement of his stuff. But um, anyway, so a lot of this comes from his, his kind of big buckets in his book, uh, but then obviously I've added material and, and kind of made it our own. And one of the interesting things to me is, is that a lot of times uh, truth is actually better than fiction. 
and so when it comes to the real stories of history, uh, you know, you, we get to, to myths in our culture today like Santa Claus. But when you go back and you study St. Nicholas of Myra, who was a legitimate pastor bishop who lived uh, in the southern part of what is now Turkey, you realize that where all of that originated, th- there's some incredible truths. Uh, and, and the actual historical figures themselves are worth going back and studying. And St. Patrick, to me, is, uh, is one of those guys. So uh, let's uh, do a quick little quiz, right? Uh, let's see a show of hands. True or false? St. Patrick kicked the snakes out of Ireland. Anybody says that's true? Let me see a show of hands, right? Yes, thank you, Barb, for being brave to go there because we've heard it our whole lives, right? How many think it's false? So, right, you know, because you guys are smart and you can tell it's a setup. He, he never did that. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's no evidence, right, of snakes in, uh, the, 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 on the island, island of Ireland uh, in uh, any pre-Ice Age time. Uh, how about this one? Uh, St. Patrick taught the pagan Irish about the Trinity using the three-leaf clover. How many think that's true? Show of hands. All right, yeah, all right. How many people think it's false? Okay, well, easy one. It, we don't know. <laughs> there, there's no way to, like, go back and prove it. But we do know this. The very first time it's ever referenced in anything is in a botanical catalog from 1726. Uh, that's the first time any historian can actually find a reference to it. Uh, so it's one of those legends that developed and was passed down, and finally somebody wrote it down. And of all places to write it down, a botanical catalog, right? Thrilling reading that had to be uh, at the time. Uh, how about this one? Uh, Patrick is the guy who came up with the Celtic cross. How many think that's true? Show of hands. So, man, we got some vigorous head shaking. No, right? So anybody think it's false, right? Again, we don't know. Don't have a clue. Uh, but uh, there's no, no specific historical evidence that leaks uh, the Celtic cross to Patrick. Now, here's what's really interesting. His name isn't actually Patrick. Did you know that? He is also not a saint. Uh, he was never formally canonized by a pope uh, in large part because, as we'll see, uh, Irish Christianity developed outside of the Catholic, out of the Roman system. And get this, he wasn't even Irish. He was born in Roman Britain, uh, and we'll learn all about him. So pretty much everything you've been taught about St. Patrick is a lie, uh, but, but let me make this point when it comes to apologetics. I do find it fascinating because much of what we in the popular imagination know about St. Patrick are these legends that have been passed down. This guy lived roughly between 400 and 500 AD. That's four or 500 years after the canon was closed. And, and yet, when it comes to the historicity of the Bible, isn't it remarkable how historically accurate it is. When events that happened long after that, stuff like Patrick, stuff like Santa Claus, right, St. Nicholas, stuff like um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, how all that gets mythologized and these legends grow up around it and you can't separate fact from fiction. And yet, as we go back to scripture, which is, which is actually older than these stories that we're studying, uh, we can go back and we can visit the sites as, as I've done, as many of you have done, uh, we can go back and, and, and read the documents that verify that these events really took place. Uh, and so it's pretty remarkable to me when you realize how it all fits together. So in our history uh, of church overview, we're going to step back to step forward uh, into this time period. Uh, I want to remind you, we talked about the early church. Uh, and then we talked about the age of the Christian empire. And that's the age, the overlap between the Christian empire and the early middle ages is where this narrative mostly takes place, mostly 400 to, to 500 AD. 
Uh, and then Brian last week did a great job with the high middle ages, uh, and then we'll get into the late middle ages next week. But one of the things that I want you to see in this, and the reason why I love this book, and here's the cover, right, uh, of Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. The, the subtitle is The Untold Story of Ireland's Heroic Role uh, from the Fall of Rome to the Rise of Medieval Europe is that he has a thesis that I hadn't really read anywhere else, is that during these pivot points in history, things change. And during those times, people step up into the occasion. And as you know, I believe in what we call kairos time. That's the New Testament, the Greek word for God's moment in time. And I believe that God is sovereign, that he is orchestrating events, and that there are people who are faithful in a moment, and God uses that in a powerful way. And that's my way of saying what Cahill says here. He says, we normally think of history as one catastrophe after another, war followed by war, outrage by outrage, almost as if history was nothing more than all the narratives of human pain assembled in sequence. It's quite a statement. And that's why most people hate history, isn't it? Because we feel like it's just one sequence of war after war, event after event, all of these terrible things that have happened. And surely that is, he says, often enough an adequate description. But history is also, I love this, the narratives of grace, the recounting of those blessed and inexplicable moments when someone did something for someone else, saved a life, bestowed a gift, gave something beyond what was required by circumstance. This is the story of how we became the people that we are and why we think and feel the way that we do. The great gift givers arriving in the moment of crisis, that Kairos moment, provided for transition, for transformation, and even for transfiguration, leaving us a world more varied and complex, more awesome, more delightful and beautiful, and stronger than the one that they had found. And I really do believe that God calls all of us, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts, that we are all called to be disciple makers. We're all called to advance the mission of the kingdom of God. We have different assignments. We have different opportunities, but we're all called. And when God's people take that seriously and you faithfully serve and you're obedient to scripture, God uses that in a powerful way. And we're going to see that tonight in this story. So I want to remind you about the fall of Rome, right? We covered that a couple of weeks ago. But in the Latin West, after Rome fell, uh, the last Roman emperor was deposed in 476 uh, AD. Uh, there was a, a season of chaos that existed. Here is a slide that shows you uh, the extent of the Eastern and the Western empires. Uh, in the red, that's most of what we talk about and think about when we think about history because we are a product in the United States of Western civilization. Matter of fact, in college, I had to take a course at Greenville College called Western Civ. Uh, many of you had to as well. Uh, there's also the whole Eastern part of the empire, and we're going to talk about that some as well in the co in a co coming weeks, and we've talked about uh, some of the split and the uh, Byzantine Empire and those kind of things. But in the red, I want you to notice, way up in the upper left-hand corner, you will see the British Isles. And you will notice that the Romans conquered, right, about halfway through what's present-day England and Wales, uh, up that, that main island to what was called Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> they literally built a wall because north of that wall were the crazy Picts, the people who, are the, descend uh, the descendants are Scottish now. And so uh, they decided that they were just going to put up a wall, and that was as far as the empire was going to go. But there's yet another British Isle, of course, uh, and that's the I island that we now call Ireland that's floating out there. So the Romans never bothered to conquer 
Ireland, and there's some reasons why, as we'll see. But as we've talked about before, as the empire was extended, it became overextended, and after 11 centuries, Rome fell because of, number one, inner weakness, political corruption, moral decay, decline of social institutions, high taxes, a disappearing middle class, and changing belief systems. Sound familiar? And I read you that extensive quote. Uh, that, uh, that Cahill gives us uh, in this same book. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to it, uh, he, of course, the only thing that he notes is that uh, the only thing that they couldn't do that we can do today is pass on long-term debt because it had not been invented yet. Uh, so we pile that on top of everything else we have going on. So there was, there was the inner weakness uh, that threatened the empire. But from the outside, uh, the barbarian tribes of the Germanic people groups were exploding in population, ironically, because they learned how to farm. They learned how to farm from the Romans, and ironically, that's part of what led to the downfall because they became so populous that uh, they felt like they could challenge Rome's authority. So, as we say often around here, if you can't say amen, say ouch, uh, as we see what's happening in our culture at the same time. So, what was lost in a world at chaos? Well, a world in chaos, Cahill notes, is not a world in which books are copied and libraries maintained. Uh, that's not the most critical thing when uh, tribes are rising and falling in which people are fighting for their lives in which feudal lords are battling out over lands uh, and all of these kind of things. Kind of quick funny story, when we started the church at Station Hill, we had a town hall meeting at the Brentwood campus. And so, open it up for questions. Cast the vision. This is going to be our first campus. This is what we're thinking about. This is what we're praying about. Talking about it, expanding the vision of what God's doing through our church family into a new community. And somebody raises their hand, and they were very well-intentioned. But the very first question that was ever asked was, is the Station Hill campus going to have a library? And I was kind of like, that's not exactly the question that was on the top of my mind. I was ready to answer all kinds of things, right? Uh, the point is, is that, we, you know, we were focused on launching a church and beginning our programs and finding a worship leader and, you know, these kind of things. That was way down the list. Well, in the same way, when barbarian hordes are bearing down on your city, the last thing you're going to do is go to the library and check out some books. Uh, and so that's what takes place in a world in chaos. So as the Pax Romana, the famous peace of Rome that ironically, of course, was enforced by, you know, armies. But as the Pax Romana ended, so did safe travel, stable borders, and legal standards. Slavery exploded. It became common, often taking the form of serfdom. Uh, so there were legitimate, and we'll talk about Patrick was a slave, right? We'll talk about that in a moment as well. But serfdom, of course, was the practice by which, you know, somebody with some power would come and rescue you or free you, save you from a barbarian horde. And they would say, oh, because we saved you and your family, you now have to work for us or we'll feed you to the wolves, literally. Uh, and so it's forced conscription. And so uh, it's estimated that by the end of this period that a third of Europe was conscripted in some way. Uh, working uh, for a feudal lord uh, in serfdom, uh, in slavery itself of some kind. So classical education disappeared. Uh, we talked about Augustine. Brian did an excellent job a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, Augustine and his theology and his, his story. Uh, he was, uh, as Cahill notes, among the last of the classically educated men. Uh, near the end of that era, who would be exposed to Aristotle and Plato, who would be exposed to uh, all of the educational resources available in the Roman Empire. It's interesting that the only official office that survived the transition from the classical to the medieval age was actually that of church bishop. And explain some things, doesn't it? As we've been talking about this messy intertwining and intertangling of the church and culture, there's a reason why. 
Well, because bishops and their scribes were often the only literate people in their community. And they were the only people who had money for books and who could read. And so interestingly enough, they became the ones who actually trained the rulers. And so you had this interplay between the heads of state and the leaders of the church in which they were going to look out for one another and they were going to tell the people what to do because the people couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so people weren't sure, right? Am I following God? Well, this is what the king says to do, and this is what the bishop says to do, and they're on the same page. So basically they had ultimate control in most communities. And so that unholy alliance between church and state was very, very messy and blurred those lines during that time. But again, outside of all of that, on the very fringe of the empire, floating out there in the ocean, what we now know as the Atlantic, is this island. And pre-Christian Ireland was kind of interesting. The, the Roman Empire had its limits, and so Ireland is an example of a culture that remained pretty untouched by Western power. Ireland was a rough and strange world, both simple and full of barbaric splendor, is the way one author described it. It was uncivilized, but it was confident. G.K. Chesterton, who was a British author, wrote in the early 1900s, the Great Gales, which is another way Gaelic, we get that term from, from the Celts as well. The Great Gales are the men that made God mad, for all their wars are merry and all their songs are sad. Uh, Chesterton was brilliant with words. And so I'm talking about the fact that to a, a civilized Western Roman mind, they had everything backwards, right? They got really excited about brutality and fighting. And then they got drunk and sang really, really sad songs. And that was really the ethos of their culture. They were descended from the Celts, who's a larger people group. And they're first documented being around about 600 B.C. Now, one branch settled in present-day France and became the Gauls. And so when you, on the old maps, you'll see, right, where now is modern-day France, it's listed Gaul. One branch settled in the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal today. And so about 350 B.C., about 50 years after the Celtic tribes first invaded Britain proper, they reached Ireland, but the Iberian Celts were the ones who were predominant there. So it's interesting, every culture has its foundational myths. And in the Irish foundation myth, the son of Mill, survivors of Noah's flood, reached Ireland from Spain, and they won control of the island from a tribe, and I'm not even going to try to say their name. Celtic names are crazy, right? But it's something like Tuatha de Danann. These taller, otherworldly beings, think the Nephilim, right, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, eventually devolve into little people, the fairies and the leprechauns of Irish le- of legends. Isn't it funny that, you know, the little guy in your Lucky Charms box, the origin of him was he was the giants that were in the land when the Celtic people invaded Ireland. And that's a psychological trick that cultures do. When they're intimidated by something, what they do is they represent it as something very, very small. In the Old Testament, uh, to to kind of make a connection here, the tribe of Dan, you will remember, was assigned land. They didn't want to live there. So in the Old Testament, they went way, way up north in Israel. And what they did was they built a God for themselves. I've been to the the ruins of, of Tel Dan. And so they have these massive stone walls that they built. And then they had this tiny little idol that was about 14 inches tall that they worshiped instead of worshiping Yahweh. 
Uh, and so what happens is, is that we have projections of, of what we wish for, what we hope for, right? And we do the exact opposite. And so in this situation, what the Irish did was they took these giant people, the indigenous people that they conquered, right? And they reduced them in their mythology to these fairy sprites and to these little leprechaun guys who we're going to see plays into their mythology as well, if that makes sense. So just imagine a giant Lucky Charm guy, right, the next time you eat your bowl of cereal. Uh, and you'll have an idea of what those people were originally. But it's interesting because Ireland was a land outside of time. It was illiterate. It was aristocratic. So it was all about the tribe uh, and the tribal leader. It was semi-nomadic. They were very superstitious. They were a warrior-based culture based on animal agriculture and slavery. They had very different ways of doing things. If I'm going to fight a battle, I'm going to put on as much armor as possible. The Celts, are they, are yeah, the Celts went the total opposite way. They literally would strip naked before battle and rushed at the enemy naked and howling. Definitely the shock and awe effect, you know. And so the first Roman soldiers are documented as being totally freaked out by this. And I would be too, to be honest. Uh, but uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a longtime U.S. senator uh, who had Irish roots, said, To be Irish is to know that in the end, the world will break your heart. There was a certain sadness, a certain weightiness to their way of life. So a worldview, right, made for great drinking songs and thrilling stories to tell around a campfire, but not for personal peace or social harmony. In other words, they had a worldview and a story that left them wanting more. Oh, and by the way, I missed my slide of, uh, so Lucky the Leprechaun. There he is. Uh, so there is, there is our friend, uh, the Leprechaun. And so, as we begin to think about it, oh, and that was a slide that kind of represents uh, the, the native tribes there uh, in some of the artwork uh, that has been inspired uh, by those original inhabitants of the, the Irish island. So here is a, a stained glass depiction of St. Patrick. So let's get into his story a little bit. Uh, his true name, again, not Patrick, it was Maywin. Patrick sounds better in my opinion, right? Uh, but Maywin, we even have his last name, Sukkot. Uh, his granddad was a priest. His dad was the Roman tax man in Britain. <laughs> so poor guy. Uh, he grew up uh, with, with a tax man for a dad. And so he was most likely born in today's Wales. Some documents think it might have been closer to Scotland. Uh, but uh, the actual true story, of course, as I've said, is better than the many myths surrounding his life. He was captured and kidnapped by raiders as a 16-year-old in northern Britain. Patricius, right, is the Latin name, anglicized to, to Patrick. He was taken across the Irish Sea by pirates, and he was sold into slavery where he lived as a shepherd. And so what's interesting is, even though his granddad was a priest, he wasn't very interested in religion to this point. But Cahill writes, the life of a shepherd's slave could not have been a happy one. Ripped out of civilization, Patrick had for his only protector a man who did not hold his own life highly, let alone anyone else's. The work of shepherds were bitterly isolated, months at a time spent alone on the hills. So, in an impossible circumstance, he began to pray. Pushed, right, to his limits, all alone, he all of a sudden turned to the only place he could turn, and that was to God. And it's interesting, if we think about biblical history, there's actually a book that I have. It's called God's Strange Love Affair with Shepherds. Because God seems to work 
through those who are shepherds. We know David. We know that shepherding is a metaphor for what the religious leaders were supposed to do in Israel. We know that that metaphor is carried all the way through uh, into the New Testament as well. And so there's something about shepherding that God seems to use. And part of that is, of course, for those who are shepherds, uh, they, it's a difficult, highly challenging, highly isolating job. And when you're alone all day and all night in the flocks with a bunch of animals, you have a lot of time to pray. Uh, and so he cultivated his prayer life. After six years of woeful isolation, uh, he continued to grow in his faith. But one night he felt like Christ came to him in a dream and said, your hungers are rewarded, you're going home. So he sat up startled and the voice continued, look, your ship is ready. Now he was like 200 miles from the coast. But he literally got up and just began walking in what he thought was the direction of the coast. And sure enough, he found a boat. That boat allowed him passage without any payment, and he sailed home to Britain. But then when he was there in Britain, he was unsettled. And one night he received yet another dream. And in this, a man that he knew from Ireland visited him in a vision. And he was holding a bunch of different letters. And those letters finally came together to say this in Latin, vox hyperconium. The voice of the Irish. And then that man began to cry out, we beg you to come and walk among us once more. And so Patrick got up and, and he couldn't come to peace with his life in Britain any longer. And so he decided to go back to the very place he had been enslaved, but now as a missionary. As Cahill notes, really the first missionary bishop in all of history. And so he returned to Ireland in about 433 A.D., armed only with his faith. The goal, of course, converting the island to Christianity, abolishing slavery. He had been a slave and saw the evils of that, and human sacrifice, which the natives there were still practicing in the process. His mission, baptizing the Irish pagans, ordaining priests, building churches and monasteries, would be the focus of the next three decades of his life. Interestingly enough, he's the first recorded missionary in the West for four centuries since the Apostle Paul. Now, likely there were those who were faithful spreading the gospel. We just don't know their names. But Patrick is the name of the first recorded name that we have since the Apostle Paul. So by the time of Patrick's death, on March the 17th, hence St. Patrick's Day in two days, uh, 461, the Irish had, get this, ended their slave trade, and they never took it up again. It was the first civilization in the history of the world to end slave trade. And it happened because of the influence of Patrick. His return to Ireland preceded the sack of the Rome by the Vandals and the Visigoths and the fall of the Roman Empire by just a few key decades. So there was this leadership vacuum that swept over the entire Roman Empire at about the exact same time that Patrick was called to go to Ireland as a missionary. So it's interesting to think about how Patrick evangelized Ireland. Even though he was a Briton by birth, instead of, you know, usually a culture, the predominant culture adopts you, Patrick sails to Ireland to adopt them, <laughs> to say, you are going to be my people. The very people that had kidnapped him and enslaved him, he went back to and he identified with them. Cahill notes, Patrick indeed seems to have been attracted to some of the same kinds of oddball, off-center personalities that attracted Jesus. The Celtic people were a wild bunch, and yet he embraced them and their way of life. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says, it delighted me to share not only the gospel with you, but our very lives as well. And so you have that intermingling, right, of the gospel proclaimed, 
but a pastor, a shepherd, a missionary has to live among the people. And it's not enough to just say, man, these people are in my mission field. You have to learn to really love those people that you're with. And there's evidence that Patrick indeed really began to embrace them. He wasn't comfortable in his own culture anymore, in his own birth culture. But instead, he really loved these people. The second thing he did was he contextualized the gospel effectively to to the Irish people. They had these virtues in their culture. Their poets would write of them. Loyalty, they wanted to be loyal above all things else. They wanted to be courageous. Uh, So they loved this idea of going into battle, fighting battles, you know, fighting what they called or or having what they called a good death, right, uh, in in battle. And and generosity. They were actually a generous people. They were very community-minded. They shared their resources. Uh, Cities had not been developed to this point, so they lived in tribes that were semi-nomadic. And so they shared their resources with each other, so they were very generous. Well, of course, Patrick picked up on those and having the New Testament. And Patrick said, well, man, I know where those values come from. God put those, those values in our heart, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we always recite at weddings, but it follows 1 Corinthians 12, which is a passage about the church. So yes, right, the love between a, a man and a wife, right, between a husband and a wife is a reflection of the love of Christ in his church. So it's appropriate to use it at weddings. But really, 1 Corinthians 13 is written more about the church than it is married couples. And, and at the end of uh, that chapter, and you guys have heard these verses before, but it's so powerful. It says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. And so Patrick used that to say, I can show you where the fullness of these virtues come from. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so Patrick had an ability to be able to to take the Irish and their stories and their values and their themes and contextualize the gospel in a way that reached them. I think one of the most fascinating things he did was, and I think this is so helpful for our gospel conversations today, is he declared how the gospel was a better story than their ancient mythologies. Uh, You guys have all seen pictures like this, right? The Druids with their hoods and their capes, and they're gathered in this piece of artwork right around this ancient tree that they're worshiping because they worship nature, and they had all of these various rituals that were mystical and that were sacred to them. And so the interesting thing about their world was that behind all of this is that the Irish believed that their gods were shapeshifters. So their gods could take on the form of an animal. Their gods could take on the form of a tree. In other words, the gods were always watching, and they were always waiting to play a trick on you to catch you in a weak moment or just to freak you out. Now, there's a story in their mythologies about how their gods killed a hundred of their own soldiers, right, just, just for fun. And so these people lived terrified of the very gods that they worshipped. And they were constantly trying to appease those gods through things like the even human sacrifice. So Patrick was able to get inside of their cultural story and say, hey, I've got a god who superintends your gods, I've got a God who's got a more powerful story. Hey, we don't have to sacrifice our babies or our people anymore because Christ died once for all, Romans 6.10. Jesus is not an unpredictable trickster, right? But he's the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Patrick replaced their belief in Druid magic with saying, right, there is something supernatural out there, but, but what happens supernaturally is that there's a miracle-working God who is sovereign over all things and working out things for his purposes. 
he built on their, their natural bent towards mysticism of the, of the people, and he, which already told them the entire world was holy, not just parts of it. So he was able to take that and say, here's what's biblical, let's point to that, and then let's cut out the rest. Psalm 24.1, right, declares the, the world is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. And as we've talked about some of these various heresies that developed in the early church, we talk about Gnosticism, right, the, the idea that stuff uh, is, is unspiritual, uh, outside of, of being influenced by those worldviews. The Irish people actually believed, right, everything had the divine in it. But Patrick was able to say, but that divine is not some trickster God who's waiting to pull a prank on you or waiting to kill you and your children or who wants you to sacrifice your children to appease him. That God is the God of the universe. He's the creator God. And so what a great moment for us to realize, what a great example for us to realize in our gospel conversations that everybody out there believes in some kind of mythology. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a worldview. That worldview has to answer four questions. Who are we? And how did we get here, right? What's wrong with the world, right? How can it be fixed and what can I do about it? Every worldview, everybody lives to answer those questions fundamentally, foundationally in their lives. And so a big part of our gospel conversations, my gospel conversations these days come as I sit with someone and if, you know, I, I'm in a conversation and I'm unsure, I try to get to where I understand their answers to those questions. Because that teaches me, as Brian likes to say, how we're going to walk out to the gospel from, from where they're at and connect those dots. And Patrick had an ability to be able to do it. Uh, I want to read you uh, one of the ways that, that he did it. This is a really, really powerful passage to me. The Irish would have said, here's a story that answers our deepest needs when they heard the gospel and answers them in a way so good that we never could have dared dreamed of it. We can put away our knives and abandon our human altars. These are no longer required. The God of the three faces has given us his own son, and we are washed clean in the blood of this lamb. God does not hate us. He loves us. Greater love than this has no man that he should lay down his life for his friends. That is what God's word made flesh did for us. From now on, we are all sacrifices, but without the shedding of blood. It is our lives, not our deaths, that this God wants. But we are to be sacrifices, for Paul says, let this same mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Strong, right? And that's what the Irish adopted. And the reason why evangelism was so effective among them was they already were seeking the supernatural. But, but Patrick was able to point to the reality. Uh, he was able to point to the reality behind the shadow in which they lived. So it's interesting to think about the impact that then that this had. Uh, because as he evangelized, one thing I, I didn't put in the notes, right? The evangelism was largely community to community. Much like we see, like Cornelius in Acts 10, his whole household responding in faith. Remember, we're not talking about Ireland didn't have cities like we know them today. Instead, there were these tribal leaders, there were these heads of households. And once they heard this gospel and responded to it and they became believers, their entire tribes, their entire extended families came to faith. And entire communities were converted, these small villages in uh, mass, one at a time. And so Christianity swept over Ireland very, very quickly. And of course, not everyone is saved. And some people did it to go along with, you know, whoever the leader of the tribe was. Uh, and some of these, uh, you know, druids and things begin to practice in the shadow, continued to keep their pagan practices. But the reality is, in a relatively short amount of time, Patrick had a massive impact in just three decades, 30 years, uh, on the entire religious state of Ireland. And so Patrick's gift to the Irish was Christianity. 
the first de-Romanized Christianity in human history without the socio-political baggage of the Greco-Roman world. If you think about it, Christianity had been received into Rome, right, when Constantine accepted it as the official religion of the empire. Not Rome receiving Christianity. But Ireland, without Rome's power and traditions, was transformed into something new. The gospel broke through into a new place. And for the first time in the West, it didn't have that traditions and the baggage of, of all of the Roman Empire to go with it. And so it's interesting to see how it spread like wildfire. It affected literature. Patrick's introduction of Christianity, Latin, and the literary canon of the West tediously transcribed by secluded Irish monks, preserved the great writings of the Greeks and Judeo-Christian culture through the fall of Rome and the Dark Ages. Hence the title of his book, right? How the Irish Saved Civilization. Because think about this. Today, we would not know that Plato, Aristotle, or Socrates existed if some Irish monks sitting on an island had not hand-copied their works. Because when the Roman Empire fell, the, the, the Vandals, the Goths, they burned all of the libraries. We wouldn't have the works of Homer. We wouldn't have the Iliad and the Odyssey. We wouldn't have any of the works of antiquity. We would, all we would be able to do is to go back over to that part of the world, right? Dig up, you know, the, the, the ruins of Roman and Greek civilization and say, hmm, I wonder what these people thought. I wonder what they believed based on what we could piece together. But it was a bunch of monks unknown to the world that are carefully copying not only the Bible, but all of these works of antiquity inspired by Patrick that literally saved all of this for posterity. So it had a huge impact on our world. Number two, art. Uh, archaeological discoveries such as the Auda Chalice reveal the transformation of the Irish imagination from fearful pagan origins to its baptized peace. I'm going to show you an example of this, a compare and contrast. I didn't list this first one here, so... But this is an example of art pre-Christian Ireland. It's called the Gundestrap Cauldron. Uh, and this is found in a bog, and that's why it was amazingly preserved. But if you can look at it, you can see the trickster god right there on the front, right? Has a funny-looking head, has these weird little arm things coming out. Of course, there's symbolism behind all of this. Uh, this one is not vulgar. There's a lot of these that are uh, quite vulgar examples of the art from that time. But you'll see how it's rough-hewn, right? It just has that vibe to it. It just looks kind of evil and weird, doesn't it? And, and just has the, the markings of that. But after, right, Christianity came to Ireland, this was the kind of artwork that they begin to produce. This is the Ardal Chalice. It is stunningly beautiful. Clearly crafted by an artisan for use in the Lord's Supper in a church in which he wanted to give his very best for the glory of God. It's polished. It's meticulously made. If you could zoom in on it, you would see the amazingly intricately uh, woven work that's there. But here's the coolest feature about this one to me. If you tip it upside down, you will see that the finest artwork is left for on the underside of the chalice. Now, the chalice was made to sit in a church. So why would you reserve your finest work for the bottom of the chalice? Because when you tipped it up to drink out of it, God himself would see it and be pleased. That's an example of true art to me, that you're doing it for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter if any man ever sees it, right? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do in word or deed, you do it as you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. The craftsman, the care, man, the, the, the work of art that this is is absolutely stunning. 
And of course, that extended to something that a lot of you are familiar with and are very, very uh, well acquainted with as well, called the Book of Kells. Who's heard of the Book of Kells? There's a, even a really cool little animated Netflix story uh, on the Book of Kells and how it came to be. But it's the, the four Gospels, uh, and it's in Latin. But what they did was they illustrated it, and it is stunningly beautiful. It's in Trinity College in Dublin uh, to this day, uh, one of the, the, the early, early versions of it, maybe uh, one of the originals. Uh, and so this artwork is incredible, and, and it's indicative of the Irish way of art in which you see uh, this complex designs, but they all move around a basic unity, a basic theme. For instance, this is the opening page uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, which contains the Chiro, uh, which is C-H-R, which is shorthand for Christ uh, in Latin. And so, but you'll see it beautifully put together, and yet you can make out those Latin letters, can't you? And so you have this even depicted in their art, even in their illustrations, this idea of how the world is, that it's varied and complex and it's rich and there's all these tapestries and layers. And yet at the same time, there is a unity that the word of God brings to our world. There's a unity uh, that our faith brings together. And so just a couple of examples, right, of how, how art is an expression of a culture. Uh, absolutely stunning uh, to be able to see that. Cities uh, were a third development. Uh, what was interesting was the Irish, again, unlike most places in the Western world uh, where cities had already developed in the Roman Empire, they didn't have cities, as I mentioned. So their monasteries, their monastic centers grew into Ireland's first population centers, hubs of prosperity and learning. People began to gather literally around the church, and then they would build communities uh, around the church. So even the development uh, of the cities in Ireland was all built around monasteries and churches to begin with. And then the missionary movement. Patrick, again, being one of the, the earliest missionaries that, that we know, uh, picked up the torch to say, we need to reach people who haven't heard the gospel. Uh, he had examples. Uh, a guy by the name of Columbia, or better known as St. Columba in our world, established a work at Iona off the Scottish coast in 564 AD. It's a beautiful little island. It's only three miles long by one mile wide, but they established a church there. Uh, they established a monastery there, and he used that as his launching off point to be able to get the gospel to the Picts, uh, which is now modern-day Scotland. You had to have some guts if you were going to go share the gospel with those crazy Scottish people, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, the Braveheart and the things that would come later in history that are depictions of how crazy the Scottish are pale in comparison uh, to the way the Picts were. Like I said, even the Romans were like, we're just putting up a wall. We're not, we're not going after those people. We're not going to go any farther. It ain't worth it. Uh, but for Columba, he was like, Man, if Patrick had the courage to come here, well, we need to have the courage to go where the gospel hasn't gone. Uh, a little bit farther down the coast, and I have been to this place, right? This is called Lindensfarne, or the Holy Isle, uh, that's off Northumberland, off the English coast. And so they established a monastery there. A guy by the name of Aidan did that in order to reach the pagan Anglo-Saxons in about 600 AD. So based on Patrick's example this missionary movement exploded. And these, I love this term, right? Warrior monks, <laughs> because they were both of those things. These weren't just monks that sat around and said prayers all day. Uh, these were explorers, adventurers, conquerors, right? But they bravely, courageously went uh, into these places where the gospel had never gone before. Uh, as Paul said, my desire is to preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached. And they were willing to take the risk associated. They were a hardy, tough, adventuresome people. And so these, these warrior monks spread in every direction into Europe from there, including to the European mainland. So get this. 
Ironically, the people Rome never bothered to conquer are the ones who introduced their own civilization back to them. It's how they learned about Roman history. It's how they learned about classical education. It was from the people who that they never bothered to conquer in the first place. It's so funny how those things come about. And spiritual practices, of course, continue to be revered and used to this day. Celtic prayers and spirituality, such as St. Patrick's breastplate, uh, are used to this day. I gave you a handout uh, of that. Uh, and, of course, there's scholarly debate about whether or not Patrick wrote this or whether or not it was later editors or whether he started it and then it was changed. But it definitely bears the marks of what we have of Patrick's writings. Two of his books have survived. He has a confession, which is his testimony, not all, like Augustine's Confessions, but a book called Confession, and there's another work. And so th this bears kind of his belief system and the way that he would articulate things. And I want to read this because I just think it's powerful. Uh, and I printed it out for you because I, I printed it out years ago. Uh, and it's just uh, one, of, one of the prayers that sometimes I, I go to. Uh, it encourages me. He says, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through the confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion with his burial, through the strength of his resurrection with his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. Love that phrase. I rise today through the strength of the love of cherubim in obedience of angels in the service of archangels in hope of resurrection to meet with reward in prayers of patriarchs in predictions of prophets in preachings of apostles in faith of confessors in innocence of holy virgins in deeds of righteous men. I rise today the strength of through the strength of heaven Light of sun, radiance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, depth of sea, stability of earth, firmness of rock. I rise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from the snares of devils, from temptations of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill, afar and anear, alone and in multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and those evils against every cruel, merciless power that may oppose my body and soul, against the incantations of false prophets, against the black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against the craft of idolatry, against spells of witches and smiths and wizards against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may come to me an abundance of reward, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through confession of oneness of the creator of creation. I'll preach, won't it? Strong, strong. And so just, again, you can just literally read through that and, and hear, right, where he pulled from Scripture. You can hear the belief, right, that God is sovereign over his creation. You can hear the spiritual warfare 
that he had to experience, hence the name, right? St. Patrick's breastplate. Ephesians 6 talks about how we have to put on the armor of God. And so I love when I read this to think about, right, this is what it means to put on that armor of God is to pray in this way. Because in that same passage, right, that's the way that Paul tells us we fight the battle is on our knees in prayer. And so pretty incredible uh, to, to, to see, if not from Patrick himself, at least the kind of prayer and the kind of power that his tradition birthed. Uh, what's interesting, of course, along with these spiritual practices, and this is timely for us, uh, because the date of Easter itself was decided uh, by uh, the Celtics in conjunction with the Romans. Brian sp- briefly spoke about this at this place called Whitby, uh, another place that I've been privileged to go. That's the ruins of the abbey that's there, uh, high above the North Sea. But as uh, the Celtic Christians had evangelized the North, uh, as the Roman Christians, who were now trying to get their act in gear, uh, and they had appointed a missionary, as you will remember, the first missionary out of Rome, uh, Augustine of Canterbury, uh, they began to push north. They eventually met, and they had some church business meetings. And at those church business meetings, they debated about the date of Easter. And those kind of details were a big deal back in those days. And so in 664, interestingly enough, the very tough Celts ceded to the Roman Christians, right, their date for Easter. So when you guys are like, why does Easter move around so much? You can blame these guys. Uh, that's why they decided that it's the whatever it is, the second Sunday after the third full moon on the whatever, you know, I, I can't even remember what it is. I just, you know, Google it these days like the rest of us do uh, when's Easter because it's a pretty big deal for us in the church, but they favored that date. Uh, and so when, when did all of this begin to shift and decline? Well, the Vikings uh, begin to invade uh, the, the Isles. And I won't go into all the details there, but they decimated these Celtic network of monasteries. Basically, a bunch of monks, although warriors, but they were only, again, in small groups, sitting on these unprotected islands floating out and around the British Isles were easy targets for Vikings. Uh, and so they would attack them, kill a bunch of them. The monks would rebuild Uh, But you're only going to do that so many times before eventually they abandon most of these monasteries uh, by about 900 A.D. But by that point, the weight of the Irish influence on the continent was incalculable. Uh, They had already made their impact, their way of life, their spirituality. Again, as they went, they carried with them their belief in Jesus Christ and their Bibles, and they carried the books of classical Roman tradition. And so in doing so, they reintroduced all of that uh, to Europe and all of the places that they settled. So uh, when it comes down to our takeaways, before we take some questions tonight, uh, what can we learn from Patrick? Well, the first thing I think is calling, is that when God calls, you answer. Uh, and uh, and, and the, without a doubt, uh, Patrick was called. As a matter of fact, even thinking about his life as a slave and as a shepherd, it's proof of Romans eight twenty eight that God was using that time to prepare him for what would be his destiny and his mission in life. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so God knew the plan that he had for Patrick's life. And so when Patrick, as a middle-class, right, uh, lukewarm, you know, uh, Roman Christian was abducted as a 16-year-old, it changed his life forever. And no doubt those six years were terrible as a slave. But God used that to do what? To draw him to himself. 
And so Patrick was not content doing anything uh, but serving the God who had sustained him, the God that he had learned to, to love during that time uh, in, in the wilderness, in that time in slavery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I love what Paul says uh, about Paul's calling. Because if you will remember, Paul was a Jew converted from Judaism who ended up right being God's chosen instrument, uniquely shaped to reach the Gentiles, but also his Jewish brethren. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. There's a lot of law in there, I know. To win those without the law. But to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. And you can just imagine, right, Patrick reading that and saying, hey, if I need to become like the Irish to win the Irish, well, then I'm going to put aside, right, my birth culture. I'm going to put aside my experience as a slave, and I'm going to go to them in the name of Jesus. So we need to hear and respond to God's calling on our life. Uh, God called Patrick, and he went. Number two is I think we learned about contextualization. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 17. I think Patrick was doing what Paul models for us at Athens. At Mars Hill, in Acts chapter 17, pa Patrick won the Irish through both the word, preaching a true and better gospel, and by deed, by living out those principles among the people. Again, think about that. Slavery was abolished because of Patrick a millennium, right, before it was even considered anywhere else. Uh, it wasn't the, the, Brit, the Brit, uh, British uh, abolished slavery in the 1700s. It was over a millennium uh, in reality before that took place. His impact was so powerful and culpable. Uh, uh, culpable. He ended um, human sacrifice as well. Acts chapter 17, uh, we'll see uh, in that passage, Paul in Athens in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned first in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace every day with some of those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. There in the culture of Athens, Paul engaged their culture. He was troubled by that statue to an unknown God. He engaged the people with the good news of the gospel and the people were curious. Why? Because they were spiritually hungry. And so no matter where we travel, no matter where we go, we find people who are spiritually hungry. And we have the opportunity to say, listen, this is, this is your story. This is what you're trying to walk out. And here is the true and better story, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, I believe that we learn that truth is better than fiction. Patrick did not banish snakes from Ireland. There's no proof he used the shamrock to impart the doctrine of the Trinity, nor is there evidence that it was Patrick um, who combined pagan and Christian imagery into the Celtic cross. But Patrick's faithfulness left a legacy greater than he could have imagined. You see, I, I don't think Patrick had in his mind, 
I'm going to be the one, right, to help the Irish save civilization. He had no clue. He was just trying to be faithful to reach the Irish for Christ and to transform their culture so it was Christ-like. And in doing so, right, it took off and it spawned a movement. And that's what happens when God's people are faithful and humble. It's where Paul prays at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And I could hear Patrick, right, praying for his people in this way. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the length and width the height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In that prayer, that St. Patrick's breastplate, right, you hear that, the length and the depth, right, the, 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 the width and the height of God's love. And then, now to him who is able to do above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. And I love that we're still talking about this guy. Why? Because he answered God's call and because he was faithful. And he transformed an island. He transformed a culture. He transformed a continent and gave rise to prayers we still pray today and examples that we still look to because of his everyday faithfulness. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the true story of St. Patrick. Uh, And I hope you've been edified and encouraged by that today. Um, He was not perfect, uh, but... He was faithful, and I think that's what's important. Brian, we got a few questions. I'm not Irish, by the way. Uh, So if you have questions about Irish culture, maybe some of you are Irish and could do a better job answering those. Uh, My family, the Strothers, are actually an English-Scottish border clan. So you know where that wall went up? We were the people, like, right on the other side. Pretty typical, right? We're we're just Germans, so Gutners. Oh, the gotcha. ball came from the English, English Isle, half English and half, half German, so we're pretty exciting. Then Rachel's, yeah, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I've got, got a couple of questions. One, that was excellent. Wasn't that excellent? Praise that God. That's outstanding. That was, that was really cool. These are, as always, fantastic questions. The first one was, if Patrick was not Catholic, how did Ireland become predominantly Catholic? The IRA's conflicts in the 80s and 90s were his unification in Catholic versus Protestant. There wasn't Catholic at this point, right? We're, we're at 400 AD. The yeah. Reformation was in the 1500s, so we're about 1,100 years early. Um, the spread of Catholicism there, I'm not familiar with, but that's a whole different. That's a whole separate movement from what we're talking about. Yeah, here. and we could spend a whole night talking about the Protestant and Irish Catholic thing that took place after. Um, but you will see when we get to the Reformation to tease that out, right? That those those fractures had real world consequences. Yep. Uh, in the sense of wars being fought, battles being fought, about who was on what side and who believed what. Uh, and unfortunately, real people get hurt uh, in those conflicts, and that's a lot of what took place in, in Ireland uh, as that debate. And as you know, there was a debate in, in all of the British Isles, right, as it ping-ponged back and forth between uh, Catholic kings and Protestant kings and queens and back and forth uh, all during that era. So, yeah, well, that's another whole. And again, some of you may be better informed than I am on that. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a messy part of history for sure. But it does, right, it comes after this time. Right, it's about 11 yeah. years. Yeah, remember, we're only, everybody's one church. When we say Catholic church, you really need to almost use little c uh, during this period of history because Catholic just means universal. 
there are no denominations at this point. The Eastern Church is kind of distinct and unique in doing its thing. Um, but remember that up to the Reformation, it's just all one church. When the Eastern Church didn't come around until the 1100, right? That's right. And it split in the, it split in the late, late 11th century. So, yeah, it's, it, yeah and that's what you know, we kind of, I kind of keep being amazed that this is our story. Right? We keep, we, we've had several questions here. Why are we studying the Catholics? We're not studying the Catholics. We're studying us, right? Th this is us, the Crusades. That's us. The Inquisition that we're going to talk about next week. That's so, us. So, yeah, uh, yeah. We've got some happy things coming yeah. next week. Remember folks. this theme. <laughs> the church has survived despite <laughs> us Christians. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's, and that's what, yeah, and I've said this a bazillion times. The thing that continues to amaze me is God is faithful and true, right? Sometimes in spite of our best efforts to be anything else. Right, God is faithful and true. All right, how did Patrick die? I have no idea. I don't I'd, know. I'd have to Google it. Yeah, I don't know that I've, I, I recall how he died or that it's recorded. Yeah, this but is somebody, somebody might know. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> Stop breathing. As, as, mo yes. as most of us, for at least four yes. minutes, right? You can yes, go four minutes without true. air. That fifth minute gets kind of rough. Yeah. I'm um, sure there's a legend out there, right, that he read a, uh, wrote a leprechaun rainbow into the, you know, sweet by and by. So. By the way, I forgot to mention that when I showed that pagan cauldron, that's where the pot of gold comes from. They believe that that's what the leprechauns filled with, with gold. Wow. Uh, was those, uh, those little cauldrons that they made. Yeah, and this is a fantastic question. This is a fantastic well question. Do we as Protestants Baptists acknowledge the canonization of Catholic saints in calling them St. Patrick, St. Peter, St. Rita? That's a, that's a great question. It is. It uh, is. I, I just use it as an identifier. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it's the name they're call, called by generally historically, and so it's an identification. I don't attach a theological impact to it or a theological ascension. And, and St. Patrick, as you mentioned earlier, wasn't a saint. Yes, correct, um, Although even officially. Right. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely argue, that's a, that's a great point to, to bring up, is that uh, I, I like the biblical terminology, right? In the New Testament, we're all saints. in Christ yep. Jesus called saints. Yep. Not because we're saintly, right? <laughs> but because of the grace uh, of Jesus that's on us all. So, yeah, agreed. It's just the common identifier uh, for, for most of these people. Right, right. Um, why is green associated with St. Patrick's Day? Uh, take a look at the, oh, the picture's down now. So if you look at the island of Ireland, if you've ever been there, right, because of the moisture, it's just green. And so I'm assuming that that's the reason why. That, there it is. Uh, green it island. Is, yes, it is very green. Um, if Patrick started these monasteries, are they considered an order like the beautiful Whitby Cathedral? Was it led by priests on a specific order? My guess is that came in Catholicism about 1,100 years later. And I, yeah, I well, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, the Benedictine order right. and the, uh, uh, gosh, uh, Aquinas. Anyway, the, yeah. there's the, the different Dominican, orders of yeah. monks. Dominicans, yes, thank you. Um, but again, those were on uh, in the, the, the Roman Empire side of things. Right. So this developed independently of that. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm sure that over time they developed their own rules and, and orders and things, but these were independent of the, of the more predominant Catholic system. When we're looking at, we're, we're looking at one week where we're going to look at Christianity outside of this kind of Western development. Yeah. Right? What was Christianity doing in India and China during all these centuries? And I think that's going to be fascinating. Um, how did St. Patrick's Day become predominantly a drinking holiday? This is fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I mean, you know, there's an association uh, from that part of the world with, with beer, beer. Yeah. Um, you know, and alcoholic beverage for sure. And again, it's like other holidays. It's so many different traditions and layers get mixed in there. But I actually came across a pretty hilarious quote uh, from an Irish-American priest. He said, drinking green beer doesn't make you Irish. It just makes you pee. So <laughs> there it is. So as, just as so you know. Uh, Lest you be tempted, right? Your Baptist pastor has told you, remember, right? It will do nothing for your spirituality uh, to drink green beer on St. Patrick's Day. I don't know how to follow that up. Um, (laughs) I wasn't expecting the Inquisition next week. Yes, be prepared. Mm. We won't won't actually do that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, After 40 years of living in poverty, uh, teaching, traveling, and working uh, tirelessly, Patrick died on March 17th, yeah. Uh, in 446, that has to be in the 460. Okay. Uh, let's see, Great Britain actually so outlawed... So he, he just died of kind of old age and right. exhaustion. Yeah, Great Britain actually outlawed slavery in 1833. Yeah, and the U.S. did the exact same 30 years later. Yeah, that was the that was um, the guy I did a talk on. Wilberforce. Wilberforce, yeah. yeah. That was the, the, the key movement, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Um, did the Roman church feel threatened by Patrick's mass unregulated conversions without the approval of the Pope? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that next week. Yeah, um, there, there, was, there was definite tension. Again, that, that, that thing, and the reason why I talked about the, the synod at, at Whitby is because you had those colliding, yep. you know, uh, kind of for the first time. And so, yeah, there was a lot about Celtic Christianity that the Romans would not have approved of, uh, the, the Roman church would have approved of. But that's part of what makes it such a fascinating case study because it developed independently from uh, the rest of the Roman system and the traditions that they had tried to layer on to things. Yeah, we're going to talk about next week. Boniface III actually said that all human beings should be subject to the Pope's authority. So, he didn't so that was their he, belief. He, he didn't have any ego issues. So, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a fun guy. We made it through all the questions. Fan- awesome. That was fantastic. Praise that God. was fantastic. And I love the, I love the, the notion of, of the calling, right, that he had it such a clear calling, even to some place he would not want to go, right? Because sometimes the Lord calls us to those hard things. That's right. Right, we've talked about, I've been reading through Samuel in my, in my uh, personal, personal readings, and a lot of times the easy way, right, is not God's way. Right, David had several opportunities to take Saul out. Right, the path of least resistance. Right, well, there's a lot of theology that says, well, they, he opened a door, so that's the way I'm supposed to go. That's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Right, that's not necessarily true. This is just awesome. This is awesome. We good? We're good. Let's pray. Let's pray and head out. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for this teaching tonight, Father. Uh, let it let it sink into our hearts. The under the understanding, especially as a missionary. Right, of how we take the gospel and walk out to the, to the people in our lives, the people we work with, the people that, that live around us, to even our own families, Father, and that we understand how to take the gospel in terms they understand, in ways they understand. And, 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 and Father, give us that wisdom and grace in your words uh, to bless people so that more and more will come to know you. Uh, as, as we prayed earlier, do not let us be the same. We've encountered your truth, and so change us. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.